0: Well, in 1831, there was a woman who lived in the maple trees of Vermont. She started Bible study. And well, after her time, that Bible study grew into a gathering. And that gathering grew into, in the late 1800s, a church, Queechy Church in Queechy, Vermont, was formed. In the late 1800s, and it had great gospel ministry out of the Second Great Awakening in the United States, which was in New England. But if you know the 1900s and what the 1900s did, um, there was much liberalism that came into the church. And really, up until 2015, the previous 60 years at Couici Church in Couici, Vermont, was filled um, really with a gospelist church, a church that didn't proclaim the gospel. And in 2015, this church was going to close its doors. A news spread that this church, like many churches in New England, if you know New England right now, closed their doors. But there was this man, this man who lived in Quechee, which is kind of a bedroom community to New Haven across the Connecticut River um, to New Hampshire at Dartmouth. He was a pastor at a neighboring church. And he loved this little city that he came to, to live in. His family participated in the life of the community. And he found out that this church was going to close. And the church that he worked for, Christ, Christ Redeemer Church, I almost said Christ Community Church, Christ Redeemer Church of New Haven, happened to be a church who loved seeing the gospel plant itself in new churches in the New England area. If you know New England, it is literally on paper an unreached people group right now. Less than 2% of people know Jesus and it's actually a pretty hostile environment to be a Christian. And so this little church in New Haven decided to take Ryan, the man that lived in Quechee, and they approached this church and said, would you be willing to give us this church, this property? This church that had been standing since the late 1800s. And the church, many of them not believers but one man, said, I would love for this church not to turn into what many churches turn into in New England these days, either a tap house or a library or literally a garage where people do work on cars. If you go to New England today in those townships, many of those churches are that way. And they agreed to give Ryan this church and Christ's Redeemer Church this church in 2015. I know these things because our church, my, pre, one of my previous church, was, had a partnership with Christ Redeemer Church in New Haven, and we went up a number of times and partnered with them in ministry to advance the gospel, and we, went, we took two trips, and remember being up in the steeple of this old church that you might see on a cardstock, going, are we going to make it, working on this old church that actually has a basement, we don't have basements, it is sleeting today. I remember working for them, and Ryan's a guy that didn't have money when they, when they approached him and said hey, would you take this church? And so Christ Redeemer Church supports him. They don't have much of a budget, and yet there is a gospel presence now in Quiche Church. And a few months after our last trip there a few years ago, he sent me an email. And he said to me, Seth, we've taken a collection. It was actually a pretty large collection from the church. And he said, you know, we know that you know churches that need help, that or poor churches, and maybe even persecuted churches like us that might need help, would you take this gift, this little gift from this little church, and be generous with it? When I think of that story and getting that email from this guy who is in a church that doesn't have a budget, much of a budget, is not even supported by the church, what a generous, little, persecuted, poor church. Think of the widow's mite and how much they actually gave for what they had. In the first century there was this little poor and persecuted church as well. This poor and persecuted church that sent money to the missionary that planted this church and the apostle Paul. And the apostle Paul received this financial generous gift and in return he sent a letter. This is the letter you have in your Bible. The letter of Philippians. And Paul wrote this letter and sent it back to this little church. This little poor persecuted church. To thank them for their generosity. And not only thank them for their generosity. But commend them to the gospel and to continue to advance the gospel. That their lives were meant to be lived for Christ. And the fruit of living for Christ was generosity. And unity even amongst diversity and contentment, and even joy. The irony of that, this letter, is this. Paul's in prison. (laughs) He's in prison, and he's talking to this Philippian church who is persecuted, who is poor, as a man in a prison cell, speaking to them about the joy that can come from Christ. See, joy isn't circumstantial. When you look on the television and you see people climbing up a Capitol, or you back up six months and see riots and cities burning, and you see the world around you in disarray, where it's hard to even have relationship or connection and unity in a church because you're divided over silly things, and yet you can have a lasting joy. And joy is a little different than happiness, right? I'm, I'm happy... That my kids can see sleet. I'm not sure the last time they've seen sleet. I'm, I'm happy that a football my f- football team won yesterday. I'm happy that I have a job. I'm happy that I get a promotion. But joy is something deeper. John Piper says it this way. Joy is a good feeling that abides in the soul. Produced by the Holy Spirit. And he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his word and in his work. You know, in my life, when I see and experience joy, is usually not in the good times, but in the hard times. Because I know that I know that I know that Christ is present. That He is there with me, walking through stuff that I can't even imagine how I get to tomorrow. But that abiding presence of the Spirit reminds me that it's going to be okay. That's this lasting joy that Paul's talking about, that he's experiencing, even in prison, that the Philippian church... Can experience and even see the fruit of as a generous church who is poor. Let me ask you a question. How's your joy right about now? How's your joy? In the circumstances of your life. If you're worried about a job that you've lost and what's next. If you turn on the television and it depresses you. If you're worried about getting COVID or spreading it to someone you love. Or you're just dealing with brokenness or weariness or loneliness. Where is your joy? That's why I want to look at the book of Philippians this spring. I'll be honest, as I prayerfully considered where we would go past Genesis. I was thinking about where we are as a church. And what a great book to remember. The joy comes from knowing Christ. And all these circumstances of our lives that are crazy around us. That we can still live for Christ. That we can still Hone in and put the lens of our lives around him. What a great book. Maybe you know Philippians from the coffee cup verses that are on the coffee cups in your home or the verses that are framed on your wall. But There's much, 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 much more to the book of Philippians than that. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There's a Bible on the end of your row. And we will open up God's word to this little book. Philippians 1, 1 through 3. Let me read it. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to unpack this intro. This is a personal letter from Paul back to the Philippians ch- Philippian church. And then I'm going to share with you the back story. You have a study Bible. Most of you have a study Bible. If you don't, get it. You can look up all the bullet point back dr- background that you want to on this little church and the city of Philippi. But I want to share with you the rich background story of how this church planted. Philippians 1, 1 through 3. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's with Timothy. Second missionary journey. He's picked up Timothy. He thought he was useful. In Acts chapter 16, so he picks him up. They're servants. They're bondservants. The word there is doulos. It means they're bondservants of Christ. They're going to follow Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. It's been about 10 to 15 years since he plant, Paul and Timothy planted this church. And so all the saints... In Philippi, These are believers in Christ. With the overseers and deacons, it means from the point in which Paul has planted this church 10 to 15 years before that there's been growth, that there's now structure to this church, to the overseers, that would be elders and deacons. Grace to you. This is familiar, right? This is a familiar refrain. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes to verse 3. Look closely at verse 3. It says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. But my question is, what did he remember about this little, poor, and persecuted church that he helped plant 10 to 15 years before? What was it that he remembered? If any of you have ever planted a church, um, they have all kinds of different beginnings. A number of you were here early, early on in this church And many of you are participating in what we would call a revitalization of a church. And there's a lot of unanswered questions when you either revitalize a church or you start a church and you're trusting the Lord to bring people and seeing where and how the gospel will advance in your community, that God might be glorified. It's interesting to start and plant a new church. If you've been there, you know all of those struggles. You know all of the ups and downs of planting or revitalizing a church. So what did he remember? To know that, we've got to turn to Acts 16. So turn with me to Acts 16, and we're going to spend our time. I want to show you this rich backstory because there's a number of things that help us understand how the gospel advances that are pertinent to your life and my life, and then there's this arcing principle here that you're going to see from the book of Acts that you just can't miss in the life of Paul. So Acts 16, if you'll flip there with me, this is where we'll be. So let me read 16, 6 through 11. The gospel is advancing. He's picked up Timothy in the first few verses there in chapter 16. And it says in verse 5, the churches were strengthened. And then the faith, and they were increasing in numbers daily. And pick it up in verse 6 with me. And they went through the region of Pergia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mystia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, Help me out, anybody. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Times two. So passing from Mystia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia, that's Europe, was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. This is the Macedonian call. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Your first first thought today is this. The gospel advances when we trust God's plans over our own. When we trust God's plans over our own. What did Paul intend? He intended to stay in, effectively, Asia. He tried twice to stay in Asia. Two different routes he tried to go to minister the gospel in Asia. That was his best-laden plan. And what does God do? He closes that door... If you look at it, he closes the door, and he opens the door where? Macedonia is Europe. It's the first gospel witness in Europe. And so he goes down to Troas, which is about 500 miles from where he's at, and he crosses the sea into, effectively, Greece, Europe. This is the first time the gospel has been to Europe. So open doors and closed doors. You ever been there with the gospel when you're trying to witness to somebody and it doesn't seem to be working? Maybe it's something else. There's a man named Adoniram Judson. Have you ever heard that name from church history kids? Some of you kids, maybe you've studied church history. Adoniram Judson, maybe you know him as a famous missionary, this Baptist missionary um, who went to Burma. But here's the thing about Judson. Judson didn't intend to go to Burma. I don't know if you knew that. But he, didn't tend to, he had prayerfully thought for years about going to India. And he tried to go to India with his young wife five or six times. But the East Asia company that was there would not let him in. He went over and over and over and God closed the door. And he came back home and prayerfully thought, where can we go? And God opened a door to Burma. And at the time, India was bad enough, but Burma was worse. No gospel presence, nobody to help him there. And he goes to Burma. Closed door, open door. And he and his wife come to Burma the first year and they conceive and they have a child a year later. And that child, six months old, dies of cholera. Sometimes open doors are tough. And it took him six years to have a first convert to see God move and have a first convert in Burma, which believed to be the, the only gospel presence in Burma at the time. Six years. And a couple of years later, because this is a Buddhist country, he was thrown in jail because the government of Burma said, hey, you're a British spy. They knew what he was doing. They didn't want the gospel to advance in Burma. He spends 21 months in a prison cell in Burma. And he's let out. And then more and more people come to know Jesus over time. He dies at age 62, young, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. And it's believed that about 210,000, because he came, and because of his witness to those 18 to 20 people, that they spread the gospel to Burma. And 210,000 people came to know Christ. And Burma is was a changed place because a man was willing to trust God's plans over his own. What is God doing in your life? What people in your life are you trying to share the gospel with? Are you trying to do ministry with? And maybe you're running into closed doors. And maybe it's that God is going to use someone else because there's never closed doors with God Doors aren't closed for God. They may be closed for us, but God's going to do his work where he wants with the people he decides to do it with. So what do you do with closed doors? And maybe better yet, what do you do with open doors for gospel witness that look really hard? You know, the guy at work that seems really tough to witness to, you're going, well, I'm really trying to to witness to this really nice guy, and I'm not having any success, but you're calling me there? There? Have you been there before? Open doors and closed doors for the gospel. Maybe we ought to ask a different question, though. It's a question that I was asking myself in a convicting way this week as I was preparing and thinking about Philippians and this text. Are we even knocking on doors? Are we even knocking on doors? God can't say no if we're not knocking on doors for people with the mission That we have to make disciples. Are we even knocking on doors? What a convicting question that is. But one we need to consider. And obviously in life. When we think about open doors and closed doors. It's broader than that isn't it? Broader than mission. When you think about the open or closed doors. That God has put in front of you. That you keep trying to. Maybe that door that you want to open. And it doesn't open. Maybe it's job. Maybe it's family. Children. Maybe it's circumstance. And you just keep banging on this closed door. And God's got this other door wide open for you. And you're going, I don't really want to go there. I don't really want to do that. But maybe God in his providence, remember Genesis? In his sovereignty, and his providence, that he moves the rudder where he wants to move the rudder of life. Maybe God is opening those doors. The question is, are we willing to walk through those doors? Are we willing to walk through those doors? Listen, the gospel advances when we submit, and I would say it more like the passage says it. The gospel advances when we submit to the Holy Spirit, like Paul did here. So are you trusting God's plans or your own? But after he said yes, look at it here. He goes, I'm in, God. I mean, he had his own plans, and he immediately says, I'm in. What happened next? Let's look at it. Verse 12. Excuse me, verse 11. When, when Paul says, I'll go, Lord, send me, you're going to see a mixture of things. You're going to see the gospel advancing and God doing work. And people say, but you're going to see trouble at the same time. Verse 11, So, setting sail to Troas. He made a direct voyage to Samothrace, following to N- Nepalus. From there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. There was no synagogue. There's no synagogue in Philippi. You have to have ten Jewish men to start a synagogue. And so people would go to the river and pray. They'd go down to the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was the woman named Lydia From the city of Thyatira, this is Asia, she's from Asia, but she's moved to Philippi. She's a fashionista, she's selling purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God, meaning she was a God-fearer. She didn't have the full understanding, but she was a God-fearer. And then the text says this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, to believe. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she she urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Look at her generosity. And she prevailed upon them. And then look what happens. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. So you got Lydia, who comes to faith. you got a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And so this is a person who is demon-possessed. She's owned by someone else. And brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, and I think mockingly... And said, these men are servants of the Most High God we, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And they con- she continued to do this. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed. So I don't think it was, hey, thanks for the help. He's annoyed, turning and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But here's the problem. Her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. How's it going for you now, Paul? And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city, meaning I can't make money. They advocated customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into inner prison and fastened fastened their feet in their stocks. And so two people have come to know the Lord. Now Paul and Timothy are in prison because of it. And then you see the third person. So you see Lydia, and you see the slave girl who's come to faith, and now you're going to see the jailer. At midnight... Paul and Silas, look at this, this is great, were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So they haven't stopped. (laughs) They haven't stopped because they were persecuted. They're continuing to advance the gospel wherever they're at, even in prison. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open so they could get out and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he would have died if those men would have gotten out of prison by the Romans, his own people. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, not thinking about leaving the prison, don't do harm to yourself, to the jailer, for we are all here, meaning we haven't left, we're not going to leave. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And when they brought them out and said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So the gospel advances first when we trust God's plans, but it also advances when we live intentionally on mission. This is what Paul's doing. To much harm to himself. He's all about the gospel. He's intentionally, he and Timothy are intentionally living on mission. In this first place in Europe, the gospel was shared in different ways and planted three people. You know, think about how different these three people are in Philippi. These are the first three converts of the church. Three ethnicities, three economic backgrounds that they come from, three different places spiritually, three ways in which the gospel would have made clear to these people one gospel. You see the power of the gospel to change all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds, and yet they come together in the unity and diversity in a church. Let me ask you a question. If you were planting a church, would Lydia, the jailer, and a slave girl possessed by a demon be your church plant team? (laughs) That's Paul's church plant team. That's how this church started It didn't start with, hey, here's an area with the same kind of people, with the same kind of money, with the same kind of skin color, with the same kind of everything. It took three unique, different people, brought them together in the unity of the gospel, and planted a church. How about that? It kind of blows the homogenous principle that we often use to plant churches. And maybe, secondly, let me ask you a question. Paul and Timothy, when they got to Philippi, they went to a place that might be ripe, To share the gospel with people. Let me ask you the question. Are there places in your life that might be ripe for you to go and share the gospel with people? Maybe it's your gym. Maybe you enjoy playing golf. And the golf course is that place. That's me. I love meeting new people that I have some things in common with that I can share with. Maybe it's the gym. Maybe it's your neighbors. Maybe it's people at work. Maybe it's hobbies you have. Where do you go? And what ways in which you can find the place where people gather? Maybe it's a coffee shop. Do you see the power of the gospel at work here? And last, let me ask you this. Do you know any Lydia types? When I think of Lydia, she's from one place and she's moved to another place and she's doing business there. Pretty much everyone in the Houston area is like that. Because nobody looks out and goes, wow, I love the humidity, I love the, the flat landscape, I love that I can't see many of the stars at night, and I, I, I can't see big sky, and can't see, um, can't see a whole lot. I don't think anybody's attracted to this area, likely, maybe I, I've, I've not met you, um, for the way that it looks, but we come here for jobs. Do you know any wealthy people? One of of the challenges uh, of of people who have a lot of money as it relates to the gospel is they don't have any perceived needs. And by the way, that probably includes all of us (laughs) because we're pretty wealthy given the current state of the world. We don't have any perceived needs. So why would I need the gospel when I have all my needs taken care of? Listen, Listen, this is Lydia She's moved from another place. She's from another place. She's come to work. She's a wealthy fashionista in Philippi. And yet God uses people to share the gospel with her and even open up her own home for the church in Philippi. You know any Lydia's? You know, one of the best ways in which The first church I was at, and it was in the middle of Houston, like Memorial area of Houston, where all the money is in Houston. A lot of the money is in Houston. And one of the ways in which the church did outreach was just having a counseling ministry. Because even the people who were wealthy all around us had all kinds of problems and all kinds of things in which they needed work on. And so the opportunity to share the gospel in that context was a counseling ministry and a friendship ministry to people Who had plenty of needs on the inside, but you would never know it on the outside. Know anybody like that? You know anybody like, maybe not exactly like, but maybe, this slave girl? Person who's been through a lot? Person who's been hurt, maybe even thrown out by the culture because of things that they've done? person who needs mercy, a person who has a lot of baggage. And secondly, the other thing about the slave girl, she didn't have any problem telling Paul what she thought. She was an agitator. She didn't like the Christian message. She mocked it publicly. How do you do with people who mock the gospel publicly or mock the gospel to you? You know what Paul did? He turned around and shared the gospel with her. He exercised the demon within her he cared for her. He knew that the gospel was powerful enough even to reach her. Is any, do you see anyone as untouchable? Paul didn't. It's a hard question. Plenty of ministry in Montgomery County for people in need. People who've been cast out. And last, do you know any blue-collared patriots who need Jesus? <laughs> we live in Montgomery County. You see, the Lydias and the slave girls and the jailers are all around us. And maybe that was at one time you. Or maybe that's you right now. You're in desperate need of the gospel. And it's our job to be sent out missionaries, to live intentionally on mission. So we live intentionally as missionaries, we pursue open doors. But where does that motivation come from? We know what to do, right? I mean, you've known if you're a believer in Christ, you know that we're servants, we're missionaries, but but where's the motivation come for that? I mean, I've given you a couple of things that we're supposed to be doing, but how does that happen? Here's your last point. The gospel advances when we really believe in the transforming power of the gospel, See, the gospel advances when we really believe that its power is transforming. Do you see that in Paul? I mean, if you just have a cursory reading of this text or any New Testament text, what you see in the life of Paul is that the gospel absolutely drove everything about him. Everything. He was fixated on it. People tried to beat him, and he got up again. Put him in prison, he got up again. For the sake of the gospel... You know why? Because he's changed by the gospel. That the gospel has changed him, completely changed him. And you see him pursuing the gospel, and you see him caring enough about people around him that they might know the gospel. See, the gospel advances when we really believe that the gospel transforms people's lives. And maybe you're sitting here going, you know, that happened for me about 20 years ago, and I remember the power of the gospel and how it changed me, but, you know, it's just I just haven't seen a lot of that. And maybe it's because we're we're not actively pursuing it. But man, the gospel drove Paul. It never stopped driving Paul. Nothing was more important to him. He lived for Jesus and to see each other people know Jesus. And he was that X-factor guy where you couldn't bribe him enough, he was still focused on the gospel. You couldn't beat him enough, he was still going to get out and be focused on the gospel. And you couldn't distract him enough to be focused on the gospel. And I think the first two... We don't really have a category for that, at least yet, to be beaten for the gospel, to be persecuted for the gospel. But I promise we all have the category of being distracted. Distracted by good things, even. I think that's the method of the evil one in our day, at least here, is that we are completely, oftentimes, distracted from the lens of the gospel and making disciples and living on mission for good things that God has given us. But make no mistake about it, the gospel is our focus. And this is what Paul would continue to say. He would continue to say this in the book of Philippians. Hey, I had all this status. I had all this gain. He did this gain-loss category. But I, but I see it as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ and being found in Him. And later in the book of Colossians, he's going to tell the Colossians, Christ is your life. He's not just this little category on Sunday morning. He's not this category on Wednesday night. He's your life. He's all of it. And in this book, he's going to say something else. To live is Christ. He's sold out. Are we sold out? How would you answer the question? How would you fill in the blank? To live is blank. To live is what? To live his family, to live his wife, to live his kids, to live his work—these are all good things. To live his money, to live his politics, to live his fixing the injustices of our day, to live his comfort, to live his security, to live as me—these are temptations that we have to struggle with. These are traps that we struggle with that entangle us, and we need the Spirit's help to remember and to pursue. To live is Christ. That's your takeaway today. To live is Christ. And the beautiful fruit of living for Christ is just what the book of Philippians says. What he says to this generous little church. The fruit of that that we're going to see over the next few weeks or really most of the spring is generosity. is unity even amongst a lot more diversity that exists in this room. That they had unity as a church and they also had contentment. They were pursuing contentment. As you live for Christ, you can be content in Him and last joy. The joy of knowing Christ. So C3, as we leave today, as we think about the world, the crazy world that we're living in and all of its problems and all of its weariness and all the things that we even want to fix and some of those are good pursuits, there's a simple truth that should govern our lives to live as Christ. And I think sometimes what we do What I do, and say, yeah, I know that, but there's all these things to fix, and there's all these problems of the world to fix, and so we almost say, yeah, I know that, but I'm going to go do this, and we get frustrated because this, whatever this is, just makes us more frustrated. really the actual solution, and yes, you can say it's a simple solution, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. When that changes, everything changes. So the priority of our life ought to be to live is Christ and experience the joy of knowing Christ. That's where we're going in the book of Philippians. We're going to raise our focus on what it looks like to live in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the power of the gospel. Some of us, I need to be reminded that you still do transform people's lives with your gospel, and it changes everything about them. And Lord, help us in the pursuit of Christ, as many of us have come to know Christ. Lord, help us remember the gospel is still changing us. Lord, help us submit to that. Help us believe that, submit to that, identify areas in our life that need work, your gospel work. And Lord, I pray for one, maybe here this morning, that doesn't know Christ and can't experience the deep and abiding joy that the grace of God provides in Jesus. So Lord, I pray that they would see Jesus for who he is. He is the Savior who gives life. So Lord, we thank you for time together. We pray that even as we start 2021 in a world that's continuing to go mad, Lord, I pray that we would recalibrate our eyes and fix them on Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.